This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. Let's look to our firm foundation this morning in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 through 40. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire on it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord." And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first. For you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after the cust- their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar, and in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time, and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, 
God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned hearts, their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Church, would you join me in prayer? Our God, as we see time and time again from your word, you are great. You are powerful. You do not let any scheme of man thwart your plan. You do the impossible, God. There are no bounds that limit your power or your works. And you do wonderful, amazing things for the glory of your name, but also for the sake of your people. God, as we see in this text and as we see all throughout Scripture, you are victorious always. Despite our unfaithfulness and despite our doubt and despite our turning away, you are victorious and you are gracious in revealing yourself to us over and over and over again through your wonderful works. So Lord, we ask for you to do that this morning. Reveal yourself to us again. Lord, we pray for our church. We pray for the church. We pray for the work of the kingdom throughout the world, that the gospel would be spread and it would be the gospel of the Bible. Lord, we pray for this community. We pray for Trenton and all the different communities that are represented here, that you would just give us a continual hearts for them, that you would give us a love for them that surpasses anything earthly that we could give them and it would be a heart to give them the gospel Lord we pray for those within our church those who are struggling those who are sick those who are hurting those who are lonely those who are being attacked from every angle God we can feel so lonely we can feel so isolated and we can listen and believe to the lies that we are told by the enemy but God Again, this morning, remind us of your word. God, equip us to be the church to one another, to remind each other of the word, to pull us out and appoint us to Christ. God, we pray for just the life of this church and the ministries within them, that the people who are serving would be filled with zeal to do work for the kingdom, that, that these sermons and these Sunday morning gatherings and life throughout the church and rubbing elbows would just energize all of us to serve you well and to live for your glory and to further the gospel and the, the depth of understanding of the gospel even in our own church, Lord. Help us to minister to one another as you've ministered to us. Lord, as we are about to hear your word preached, we pray for Pastor Aaron that you would be with his words. We pray for each one of us that we would be attentive. God, that we would be focused, that we'd be engaged. Lord, we pray that you give us a hunger for your word a hunger that cannot be satisfied anywhere else but for right here and right now in this moment, being taught through your objective 
truth. Lord, we need your help. And we, we ask that your spirit would illuminate these truths for us, whether this is a story we've heard a million times or the first time, Lord. Your spirit is still at work, and your word is always beneficial to hear. And you are always teaching us through it. So God, teach us this morning. Shape us and mold us for your purpose. Shape us and mold us into your disciples so that we can live for you. For that is for your glory, for your kingdom, and also for our good. And we thank you for that. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. So good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm not sure we dismissed the kids, but we are dismissing them if they would like to go. Um, but if you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to be open to 1 Kings chapter 18. And one of the things I would draw to your attention is that, hey, we're celebrating the birth of a nation, right? And that's, that's a good thing, especially when freedom is the centerpiece of what that nation was created. But one of the things you probably didn't know is we're also celebrating the birth of a church. First Presbyterian Church today, actually yesterday, the second, celebrated 119 years of existence. Just some raw, quick facts. We were planted out of First Presbyterian Church of Wyandotte in July 2nd, 1903. There were 39 original charter members who started the church. Our first building was on Cherry Street in downtown Trenton. That building still stands. And yet our parent church, First Presbyterian Church of Wyandotte, no longer exists. I decided to spend a little time this morning just thinking through all the things that this church would have seen since its foundation 119 years ago. These are just things I found on the internet, but things that ultimately happened since 1903. The USA uh, acquired the Panama Canal, that zone, and eventually built the Panama Canal. Uh, the Wright brothers made the first controlled and sustained flight at Kitty Hawk in North Carolina. In that time frame, since 1903, we've seen 21 presidents going all the way back to Theodore Roosevelt, who was serving in the place of the assassinated president, William McKinley, who died in 1901. We saw the establishment of what was known as the Bureau of Investigation, which would later become the FBI. We saw World War I, which lasted from 1914 all the way to 1918. When our church was existing, there was the first long-distance telephone service between New York and San Francisco, and everybody celebrated that it was demonstrated and, and that it was even possible. It's mind-blowing. In 1918, there was the first worldwide flu epidemic. In 1925, there was the famous Scopes monkey trial. In 1927, the first nonstop transatlantic flight by Charles Lindbergh. And then in 1929 was the beginning of the Great Depression. In 1931, there was the Star Spangled Banner, which was finally accepted as the national anthem. Then World War II came about in 1939 and lasted to 1945. America was ushered into war on December 7, 1941, when Pearl Harbor occurred. The war ended by the dropping of two atomic bombs on both Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 1947, the CIA uh, agency was established. And then there was the Korean War from 1950 to 1953. 
Then it's up for debate exactly when Vietnam began. Some say 1950, others say 1954, and still others say 1957. But Vietnam War lasted all the way to 1976. In 1958, we saw Explorer 1 take to space as it was the first satellite the Americans had launched. In 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King gave his famous speech, I Have a Dream. In that same year of 1963, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. In 1964, we had the Civil Rights Act, which was signed by President Johnson. In that same year of 19, or excuse me, 1967, many of us maybe even remember this, but the Detroit riots ensued. In 1968, Martin Luther King, as well as Bobby Kennedy, were both assassinated. 1969, we had the Apollo moon landing. In 1973, Watergate occurred, followed by, in 1974, Richard Nixon's resignation. 1979, we experienced the Iran hostage crisis. And then in 1986, we experienced the Challenger shuttle exploding. In 1991, Operation Desert Storm ensued. In 2000, we all learned together what a hanging chad was as we awaited the outcome of the election between Al Gore and George W. Bush. And then our lives were forever changed on 2001 when the 9-11 terrorist attack took place. From 2001 to 2014, Operation Enduring Freedom occurred. Our TV sets were filled with live footage of what was taking place. 2003, the Space Shuttle Columbia exploded as it came upon reentry. And then, of course, we could jump to 2020 and talk about COVID and all the other turmoil we've experienced. Our church has seen a lot, hasn't it? Our church has seen a lot of trials and tribulations. It's experienced a lot of different variations of things. And those are things just outside the church. If you actually contemplate the things within this church, and you go back to 1903, you understand that we actually uh, saw two buildings our first building, as I stated earlier, was on Cherry Street, was built in 1904. Later, they would purchase property here in West Road and build the main sanctuary that you stand in today that was built in 1959. Both of those properties saw remodelings and additions. And for a while, they actually operated out of both locations. But eventually, they would merge into one location and they would sell off Cherry Street. We experienced the rapid growth as Trenton itself exploded in the late 1960s. There have been 20 different senior pastors who've served this church. Plus, there's been five additional pastors who've served as associates, assistants, and interims. First Presbyterian left the denomination over liberalism, and it joined a new denomination. We sent out countless missionaries all over the world with the purpose of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the least, the lost, and the needy. Our church has participated in 12 church plants, with five of those coming right out of First Press. Friends, can you for a moment imagine all the discussions, all the debates, all the decisions that have had to be made to get us where we are today? 
But I want to tell you this morning, the most important discussions and decisions were those that didn't deal with color of carpet, but actually dealt with biblical faithfulness. And that's exactly what we see in our text today. A lot has happened to get Elijah to the point of where he's at. We've seen a people of God called together. We've seen a growing kingdom, and eventually we saw a divided kingdom. And during that divide, the northern kingdom called Israel begins merging together the worship of the true God, Jehovah, with the worship of an idol named Baal. And all this was encouraged by Israel's own king, Ahab, and his wicked wife, Jezebel. This merging together of worship is called syncretism. Even today, we must be on guard against syncretism for the idols that are merged together with the worship of the living and true God don't have to be made of wood and stone. They can be anything, even our culture. And this is why we must be careful. Many today say the merging of God with culture is just progress or it's just simply contextualization. But contextualization, while it can be good for things such as modern versions of the Bible, can be dangerous when you're led by the culture. We must always be careful not to replace faithfulness to the word of God with faithfulness to culture. The truth is, the church will always be at odds with the culture because of one word, Sin. Elijah, the prophet of God, in our story this morning, a very well-known, in fact, it's probably one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. We see Elijah, the prophet of God, going face-to-face with the popular culture of his day, which was the worship of Baal. Friends, here's the point. The battle is real. The battle was real for Elijah. The battle is real for every true follower of Christ. For we've been called to be in the world, but not of it. Let's look at our text. Because as we open our text, we begin to see that obedience to God means that we will be at war with our idols. Dropping back to verse 19, we know that Elijah stood up to to Ahab. And he told him, ultimately, that that they should meet at Mount Carmel, bringing all the false prophets of Baal. And exactly that is what Ahab says, let's do. Let's go. You want to fight? Let's fight. You can imagine almost the idea of of two, two huge powers coming together and clashing. And yet, through it all, Elijah takes command of the situation. Draw your attention to verse 21 where Elijah asks the people who are gathered there at Mount Carmel, he says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And notice the phrase, the limping along. Some may interpret this as lameness, the idea of the use or need of crutches, but others have said, no, it's actually skipping and dancing, the idea of moving around without any concern or worry. But one thing is clear, Elijah is calling the people of God to the exclusive worship of the living and true God. 
He's calling them back to the first commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, where he says, you shall have no other gods besides me. After all, Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Friends, Elijah's words to the people of his day are of the utmost importance to the people of our day. True belief in God does mean obedience to him. It requires following him. Pastor Ralph Davis says, theology leads to discipleship. We could add to that and say biblical or correct theology should lead to biblical or correct discipleship, which would be following God and not veering to the right or to the left. What's ironic about this is Elijah points out the unique situation he's in. In Israel, in the place that's supposed to be worshiping God. Look what he says in verse 22. I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal has prophets of 450 men. Elijah doesn't want this opportunity to be lost. The fact is he wants everyone to see that it is him and his God versus Baal and all of the masses of people. But one of the things we see is that Elijah is willing to take on this challenge. In verses 23 and 24, he says, Let two bowls be given to us, and let them choose one bowl for themselves and cut it to pieces and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it, and I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire in it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God people responded, this sounds good. And before we kind of pat them on the back and say, well, at least they're searching, they're seekers for truth, understand what the meaning, this sounds good, really does entail. See, when the terms were set, the odds favored Baal, and the people knew this. They were meeting on Mount Carmel, which is Baal country. It's the regular place of worship for Baal. The people looked and they saw that the prophets of Baal were 450. Clearly, with all of them screaming, Baal would respond versus the one prophet of Jehovah. Not to mention the background that Baal as a god is pictured with a lightning rod in his hand, for he was the god of storms. So this was his kind of challenge. He was up for this kind of task. And so the people willingly agreed, not wanting to lose their idol. They said, this seems good. This seems right. This seems fair. How unfortunate to consider that these were the children of Yahweh. Church, Elijah's situation forces the question to all God's people. Are we willing to stand alone for the right thing? That's a question each and every one of us must be ready to answer. Are we willing to stand alone for the right thing? Are we willing to stand alone when the odds are against us? That's the question that Elijah asked the people. Who will you follow? And see, the odds were against 
Jehovah. At least that's what the people thought. The odds seemed to be very in favor of Baal. I just went through the details of why the people would agree. But here, why the odds were so greatly favored against Yahweh. According to verse 30, Elijah had to repair the altar because it had been torn down. And if that weren't enough, Elijah goes one step further and says, take some jugs of water and pour them on not just the offering, but on the wood itself. And he says, don't just do it once, do it twice. And don't just do it twice, do it a third time. So much that water with the ditches were actually full. It seemed like Elijah had understood something that God had told Abraham so long ago which was simply this, found in Genesis 18, is there anything too hard for God? Elijah seemed to be a man of great faith as he trusted his God in the face of the odds being stacked against him. The church understand this. Every advantage that Baal was given would only serve to increase the glory of God who would answer by fire. Let me say that again. Every advantage that Baal was given would only serve to increase the glory of God who would answer by fire. And we may look around in our culture and seem that all hope is lost. But God will get his glory. Isn't that the truth of the case of the cross? When all hope seemed to be lost, Jesus, the promised one, was there hanging on the tree, left to die. And yet the psalmist so rightly says it in Psalm 30, verse 5, joy came in the morning. Jesus would defeat death and hell through the resurrection. After all, the apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 22, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Praise God that when all seemed lost, there was hope. See, the bottom line is God's power is shown most clearly when the odds are against him, when we are at our weakest. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 about this very idea about God showing his power when we're most weak. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Church, do you have that kind of faith? How have you seen God's power in your weakness? How have you seen God show up when the odds were against him, against his church, against his kingdom? The battle still rages. The prophets of Baal are crying out, Baal, answer us! Baal, answer us! In verse 26. But not getting any answer, it says they limped along on the altar. And then Elijah mocked them. In verse 27, you read, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he's sleeping or he's on a journey or perhaps he's going to the bathroom. What moxie. 
What moxie of this prophet to be able to actually mock his enemy when all the odds favored them? The prophets of Baal, not realizing they were being mocked, cried all the louder. They cut themselves in the hopes that their suffering would earn Baal's attention. Friends, what an evil system to be caught up in. That your suffering is what God uses to gain his attention. (laughs) Any system that teaches that is just wrong. And yet how often we can be like this. We can begin assuming that God will only work if we do. That God will only act if we pray longer prayers. If we're faithful in our devotions. If we attend church. If we tithe. If we fill in the blank. We do all those things in an attempt to manipulate or stir up God to our will. Just like those Israelites who were crying out to Baal. Cutting themselves. Suffering to get his attention. And yet Jesus points this out saying that's what pagans do. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 through 9, Jesus said, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need of before you even ask him. Note the faith of Elijah. He speaks boldly, and he prays simply. He speaks boldly, and he prays simply. In verses 36 through 37, we read of Elijah's prayer. He says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Elijah's praying for revival. Elijah's praying that this moment, this battle, this struggle where the odds were against him would be an opportunity for God to show his glory and power. And he prayed believing. He prayed simply, but he spoke boldly. Church, what about you? Are you willing to speak boldly about your God in a culture that resists anything godly? Are you willing to speak boldly about your God and are you willing to pray simply believing he will do what he's promised? Or are you more like the prophets of Baal seeking to manipulate your God by your suffering to do your desires? The story keeps going on until eventually after that prayer, something absolutely astounding takes place. Fire comes. See, victory always belongs to the Lord, doesn't it? Yahweh never disappoints. Look at verse 38. Then fire of the Lord fell, and it consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was there in the trenches. Notice that the the fire of the Lord is an all-consuming fire. But this wasn't unique to Elijah. This is the same event that took place for Aaron back in Leviticus chapter 9, in verse 24. 
And just as God was willing to accept the sacrifice of Aaron back in Leviticus 9, God was now accepting the sacrifice of Elijah. And yet we're told in Scripture that a better sacrifice would come, that sacrifice of God's own Son. The writer of Hebrews tells us so clearly in Hebrews 10, verse 11 and following, he says, And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which never can take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Hear this. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Praise God for Jesus. Praise God for the sacrifice that God has provided in his own son. Praise God for Jesus who's taken the wrath and the fire of God for those who believe and trust in him. And what is the response? Verse 39 tells us the people saw it and they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Their reaction is the same exact reaction of the people in Aaron's day in Leviticus 9. In fact, I would propose that that is the same exact response each and every one of us should have to the greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ. He is God. He is God. This is the only appropriate response to God's power and glory. And then we read something that stirs many people makes them uncomfortable when they read it. Elijah tells the people to seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape, he says. Slaughter them all. Friends, this command may seem harsh, but it shows how serious the sin of apostasy is. It shows how dangerous it is to lead God's people into apostasy through syncretism. So friends, I ask you, are you taking the worship of God seriously? Are you leading others to do the same? Church, as God's people, we must expect conflict and battle, especially against culture, for we are living at a time of war, not peace. And as God's people, we can be assured that even when the odds are stacked against us, as long as we are on God's side, we will know victory. And this should give us confidence to speak boldly and to pray simply and trusting that joy comes in the morning because the Lord, he is God. Praise God for the gift of salvation and the hope we, his people, can have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close our Bibles, as we step away from this text, may it linger inside of us the call to be bold, the call to pray simply, trusting you because you are a good and perfect God, faithful to your word. Lord, may we not be involved with the merging together of culture and the worship of God, but may we be faithful to you. May we set our eyes upon heaven and the throne and remember the King of kings and the Lord of lords for whom we worship. 
for he and he alone is worthy of all of our praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.